According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We're here for the purpose of growth. If you can turn to John chapter 5 as we get started this morning. John chapter 5. Robert, would you do me a favor? Remember where we had our teen class Sunday night? That's where my Bible is. I have not yet memorized John chapter 5, so I'll send Bob to go get my Bible. There we are. All right. I'm sorry? Worth the time? Oh, well, good. Yeah, he recommended you start with Titus, and then after you memorize Titus, you can memorize Ephesians. And then after that, say, I'm listening. I may be out of town, but uh, messages are still posted to the website. And anywhere you're, you happen to be anywhere around the world, if you have Internet access, you can download the MP3s from, uh, from AustinBibleChurch.com. All right, John chapter 5. Let's uh, begin with a word of prayer to sanctify our thinking. Shall we pray? Father, we do come before you this, e- this morning, thankful for your grace and truth, thankful for the opportunity that we have, rejoicing, Father, that you have made the provision for us to not only assemble together, but you've given us the spiritual capacity to perceive your truth. And Father, this is the infinite truth of your word, and yet it's communicated to our finite minds by the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit. And we're so thankful that you make these things clear. We thank you, Father, that if we've uh, if we come here desiring to to grow, you're going to bless that. You're going to honor that. You do so every time. And so we ask for distractions to be set aside. We ask, Father, that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear and a heart to understand. And we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, we have been using the Harmony of the Gospels as our scorecard now uh, for some 90 lessons or whatever lesson this happens to be. What lesson is this? This is 91. All right. And if you want to use that as a guesstimation for how long this series is going to last, you can look on this four-page document towards the bottom of page one. We are in the midst of the Galilean ministry running from roughly 30 A.D. to 32 A.D. And uh, there are 56 events in the Galilean ministry. And uh, three weeks ago, last time we were here, we uh, were wrapping up the last details of event number 12, the uh, passage here in John 5, where he goes to Jerusalem for a second Passover and he heals the lame man. That's the content of John chapter 5, verses 1 through 47. And as you will notice... On this uh, table here, that the Gospel of John is the only Gospel that records this particular event. There is a blank space in the columns for Matthew, for Mark, and for Luke, meaning that those Gospels don't cover that particular event. It's only covered by the uh, Gospel of John. When we move on this morning to event number 13, the plucked grain controversy, uh, you'll see that those are covered by Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and they're omitted by John. Likewise, in fact, we have a whole string of events here that are covered by the Synoptic Gospels, but we don't get back to John chapter 6 until way down in uh, event number 36, the feeding of the 5,000. So we're not going to be in the Gospel of John for some time. You can use this. You won't necessarily need this. You won't need to bring it to every single class, but this will be something you will refer to periodically just to uh, keep tabs of where we are, where we're headed, and, uh, and what's coming up. All right, in John chapter 5, and I don't have the slides, I deleted the slides already off of the laptop, but um, let's just look at the material once again, starting with verse 1. After these things, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And by observing the feasts, by observing the uh, the calendar that Israel followed in those days, we actually uh, do ourselves tremendous favors in trying to chart the chronology of it. In other words, their feast calendar was so regular and, and it provides the mile markers for us to be able to uh, determine a three and a half year period for the life of Christ. And I should also point out 
that the Gospel of John is necessary in order to put that sequence together. If all we had was Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we would have no biblical evidence for the life of Christ or the ministry of Christ being any much more than, say, a year, year and a half. Uh, but the Gospel of John gives us the, uh, the various Passover feasts that he attends, and that helps us to, uh, to chart out the, uh, the time frame that we're dealing with. Now, there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porticos. In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered. And all of the events that follow in this chapter deal with Jesus Christ healing. He doesn't heal the multitudes. He heals one individual out of the multitudes. One individual who at this point of time was ready to be convicted, was ready to be to receive the rebuke. And when Jesus Christ nails him on a sin problem, he doesn't react in a huff. All right, at least so far as the scripture here records, uh, when Jesus, uh, in verse 14, afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, behold, you've become well, do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. And we see he doesn't react. It's, it's quite similar to the woman in John chapter four, when Christ exposed all of her adulteries and all the rest of it. She didn't respond in a, in a huff or, well, how dare you and what business is it of yours and so forth. She is delighted because she has just uh, come face to face with a true, legitimate uh, living prophet. Likewise, this man is delighted. He doesn't respond with being offended or anything or mad, but he goes to uh, those that uh, had been asking, well, who was it that healed you? All right. And he's able to tell them that it was Jesus who made him well. Well, the biggest problem, as far as the Pharisees were concerned, was that it was the Sabbath that he did this on and that uh, the miracle, uh, never mind the fact that it was a work of God, never mind that it was uh, a testimony of divine power. The fact was that Jesus healed this man on the Sabbath day and in their mind he was breaking the Sabbath. All right. In their mind. He, by healing this man and then telling him to carry his pallet home in verse nine, when he says, uh, you know, uh, in verse eight, Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your pallet and walk. And so the man became well, picked up his pallet and began to walk. It was the Sabbath and the Jews in verse 10 were saying it is uh, the Sabbath. It is not permissible. It is not permissible. And the reason why I'm reviewing what we did. Well, first of all, it's been three weeks since we've been here. Uh, but beyond that, so many of these elements from those lessons are coming back today because when we get over back to the synoptic gospels and we deal with um, the very next two events, the plucking of grain, it's a Sabbath controversy, the withered hand, another Sabbath controversy. And these three controversies come one after another after another. And the elements are quite similar, but we're starting to see the um, the insanity deepen, as it were in that's just my descriptive term for what these Pharisees are going through here. But I think you're going to observe that it's it's getting it's getting harsher. The conflict's getting harsher. They're getting more and more unhinged. All right. When it comes right down to it, it was the Sabbath on that day. It is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. Well, permissible in whose in whose book. Right. If 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 somebody tells you it's not permissible. Well, says who? Right. In, in, as far as the Bible says or as far as you say. All right. And a lot of people really this comes to the core of what we're doing as Bible students, because we want to know what does the word of God say? Not what does a church say or what does a religion say or what are the do's and don'ts and all the rest of it? The answer to legalism is the Bible. What does the Bible say? So it's not permissible. We'll have that coming up again this morning. As far as the remainder of this goes, um, I think perhaps we we majored on the the miracle and maybe we didn't stress well enough the impact of the message and the impact of the father and the son and the love intimacy. So I just wanted to spotlight that here in, in John five before we move on to Matthew 12. We're going to spend the bulk of our time in Matthew 12 this morning. But the uh, the desire for persecution occurs in verse 16 and that transforms into a desire for murder in verse 18 verse 16 says for this reason the jews were persecuting jesus because he was doing these things on the sabbath then he answers them in verse 17 my father is working until now and i myself am working there was an intimacy that jesus christ had always has had from eternity past with the father 
He continues to have that intimacy during his earthly incarnation. He continues to have that intimacy even now throughout the church age while he's seated at the Father's right hand. And by the way, I should point out that's an intimacy that you and I should have with our Heavenly Father. If we truly identify with our position in Christ, we will. But notice how when you take a stand for the Father, when you take a stand for intimacy with God the Father, what uh, a conflict that sparks. And it goes from persecution to murder very quickly. Verse 18, for this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. It always blows me away when critics today tell me that, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. And I, I just, I'm dumbfounded sometimes. I say, well, what Bible are you reading? See, because I see it again and again and again throughout all the Gospels, John in particular, but all the Gospels make it very clear that he was himself God, the Son of God, God the Son, the God man, and all the rest. And um, it's just a, a willful evil that wants to deny the deity of Christ and so forth that says, well, he never claimed to be equal with God. And I find it remarkable because here, quite clearly, the Pharisees knew exactly what he was saying. And that's why they were picking up stones to stone. And the Pharisees weren't stupid. They were brilliant scholars, at least as far as the, the letter of the law is concerned. They kind of missed the point as far as the reality of it goes in many ways. But they, uh, the Pharisees say what you want about them. They were not blithering idiots. They did recognize that he was making a claim to deity here. And if he was not deity, well then sure, claiming to be God when you're not God is blasphemy. But when you are God, claiming to be God is not blasphemy. It's simply testimony, witness to the truth. Now, this intimacy here, Jesus answered and was saying to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, these things the son also does in like manner. And this is a powerful passage, not only for this particular study, but in overall studies of Trinity, for example, and understanding how does the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, how do they relate to one another and how have they always related to one another uh, in all of their inner workings from eternity past onward. The love relationship spotlighted in verse 20, for the Father loves the Son, and on the basis of that love shows him all things that he himself is doing. And the Father will show him greater works than these, so that you will marvel. If you thought the first advent was spectacular, wait till second advent, where the Father continues to demonstrate work, where the Son continues in imitation to demonstrate that work. And it's going to be a remarkable thing that even gets spotlighted here in terms of the coming resurrections in verses 21 and following. Anyway, I wanted to spotlight this again this morning, not only to bring us back into a uh, a mindset with respect to where we are in the life of Christ, but also to really highlight the issues there on love that are oriented from the Father's perspective. The Father loves the Son, and I can't stress that enough. All right. There's uh, a lot more we could do with it at this point, but we're uh, we're going to let it go. If you're interested in those, uh, those classes, uh, that's the material we've been on for about three or four weeks running. And uh, those MP3s are available, tapes, CDs, whatever media format you so require. I imagine if you still have an eight-track tape somehow, we'll find a way to put an eight-track tape out there with Bible teaching, if that's what you really want. All right. Turn over now to Matthew, Matthew chapter 12. And we could, I suppose, read all three accounts. Matthew's got eight verses worth. Mark has six verses worth. And Luke is the shortest with only five verses. Uh, materially, they are nearly identical. And so we'll use the bulk of our time in Matthew chapter 12. The one There is a verse out of the Mark record that is uh, unique to Mark, not counted, not recorded in Luke's account or Matthew's account. And so we will examine that when we get to that point. But in dealing with the, uh, the plucked grain, let's just read through it. Mark, uh, Matthew chapter 12. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples became hungry and began to pick the heads of grain and eat. But when the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples do what is not lawful to do on a Sabbath. 
But he said to them, did, have you not read what David did when he became hungry, he and his companions, how he entered the house of God and they ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those with him, but for the priests alone. Or have you not read in the law? So there's one argument. Go back and learn from the life of David. Second argument. Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent? Okay. There's second argument. Uh, that uh, regularly speaking, the uh, and we'll deal with each of these in turn, but the priests are themselves Sabbath breakers, if you were to be so paranoid about it as these guys were. But verse 6, I say to you that something greater than the temple is here. And uh, man, if I could develop an entire series of, of doctrinal teaching out of that verse, I think it'd be very profitable. Something greater. Something greater. And there's... The principles of logic, when you apply the, the concept to that which is greater and then you bring it back and relate it to that which is less, um, you can learn some tremendous things. There's more teaching on that coming up as well in this very chapter, but we'll, uh, we'll deal with that down the road. Verse 7, But if you had known what this means, I desire compassion and not a sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. In so many ways, the the uh, the healing of the man by the pool of Bethesda, the uh, plucked grain, uh, the one we got coming up with the man with the withered hand. All of these are teaching the same lesson, but they're teaching it over and over and over again. And you would think had the Pharisees caught on the first time, then it wouldn't have been necessary to go through number two, number three, and so forth. Uh, Sabbath controversies don't end after these three, by the way. They continue throughout his life and ministry. But you would not have condemned the innocent. Just jot a little mark there and for the next week or a couple of weeks, however long we're in this chapter, just dwell upon in your prayers and your thoughts and your scripture reading and consider the word condemned. And consider how it is that when you're dealing in realms of legalism, you're dealing in realms of condemnation. Every time. And it doesn't matter if it's, if it's Judaic legalism, such as here, if it's Baptist legalism, Catholic legalism, whatever form of legalism it is, doctrinal categorical legalism, doesn't matter. Say, we got our own form. Legalism is, attaches itself to condemnation. Because whenever somebody doesn't measure up to your standard of legalism, well, it's time to condemn them, cut them down, force them to conform. All right? Thank goodness... When you have a grace ministry rather than a legalism ministry, that condemnation's gone. <laughs> you can read a verse like, uh, there's no condemnation now to those who are in Christ Jesus and really believe it. You really read it and mean what you're saying when you're reading it. And he says here, you would not have condemned the innocent. So we'll deal with that as well. Verse 8, for the explanatory gar, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. All right, now there's your eight verses that deal with event number 13 in the Harmony, uh, the plucked grain Sabbath controversy. It's immediately followed in verses 9 and following with the, uh, the withered hand. And, uh, and that takes us on down. Just glancing at your Harmony, you will notice, as I said, we're leaving the Gospel of John for a while. We've got the plucked grain Sabbath controversy, the withered hand Sabbath controversy, healing of the multitudes. And in uh, all three Gospels, you see that these are coming right on the heels of one another. From Matthew 12, uh, Mark 2, leading into Mark 3, and Luke 6. These events are all recorded in the same sequence. And so you have it there. We're very quickly coming up to the selection of the Twelve Apostles. So we'll do some studies on the Dodecapostologue, the selection of the Twelve Apostles, and then the Sermon on the Mount. And... Uh, just anticipate that that's going to be a while. <laughs> Sermon on the Mount does not get taught on a single session. All right? So just anticipate that there will be some teaching there in Matthew 5, Matthew 6, and Matthew 7. And that uh, will deal with the important kingdom passage there of the, of the uh, Sermon on the Mount. All right. First of all, let's get some observations here. The location of the grain fields is not known. But the Lord and his disciples are apparently en route back to Galilee. The location of the grain fields is not known, but the Lord and his disciples are apparently en route back to Galilee. Matter of fact, in your harmony chart for location, it even says that. En route, or en route, I guess it depends on what part of the country you're from. En route, or en route, to Galilee. 
as you might expect, this is really in the Galilean ministry portion. And uh, the trip to Jerusalem was simply a time out, as it were, a, a pilgrimage. They were expected to make that trip to Jerusalem for the Passover. Any observant Jew would be doing that, would be making the pilgrimage to uh, Jerusalem to uh, sacrifice in the temple for the Passover uh, feast. And now back to Galilee as he goes back to work, as it were, in uh, continuing on in the Galilean ministry. In the Mark account, Mark 3, 7, uh, we have the escape route mentioned here when it really starts to heat up. This is after the uh, plucked grain and after the withered hand. When he withdraws, it says he withdrew to the sea. In verse 7, Mark 3, 7, Jesus withdrew to the sea with his disciples and a great multitude from Galilee followed and also from Judea and Jerusalem, Idumea, beyond the Jordan, Tyre, Sidon, and so forth. Anyway, the sea there being the Sea of Galilee when he crosses to the other side and selects his disciples. So as far as the geography goes, we recognize that in John 5 was a trip to Jerusalem to observe the Passover, but now he's headed immediately right back to Galilee again where he resumes the Galilean ministry on down through all 36, 56 events in the Galilean ministry. All right. Secondly, here come the food monitors. Remember them? The food monitors who apparently don't have anything better to do. The Pharisees observed the disciples' grain consumption and they filed an immediate indictment against them quickly i mean like that the food monitors the pharisees observed the disciples grain consumption and filed an indictment against them they immediately levy the charge to jesus christ with the full expectation that he's going to do something that he can't possibly sanction their sabbath breaking he must put a stop to it or he himself becomes exposed as a sabbath breaker see that's their nefarious plot, anyway. We've uh, seen some of this already, if you recall. Not too long ago, in fact, event number 10, when Matthew got called, when the tax collector was called, you remember what he did? When the tax collector was called, he left his tax collection booth. He became a disciple of Jesus Christ. He started to follow Christ. He was This was evidently the first non-fisherman to do so. And he starts holding receptions night after night after night in his home. And many tax collectors were there and other sinners were there. Well, there were food monitors on hand at that event as well. Uh, very disapproving of who Jesus was dining with and the kinds of company, the kind of company he was keeping and why would he even be in Matthew's house, see. And so here they are again, watching, all right, Watching, And it really is uh, perhaps even a study on its own. What motivates this kind of scrutiny? Right? What motivates this kind of scrutiny uh, as far as this goes? Now, there is a legitimate sense in which we should watch out for one another in, in godliness, in uh, love, where we can... If you observe your brother stumble, you can come alongside and offer an encouragement, help them, you know, pick them up. If they need to confess, you can urge them in that regard and rebuke them as necessary. Just offer an encouraging word. But we're not spying on one another with this constant attitude of uh, how can I catch them and what do, can I catch them doing next? See, that's not the uh, that's not the role of the church. It's not the role in any godly sense. But what we do find, remarkably enough, we do find the Bible talking about us under the microscope in the realm of the angelic conflict. Ephesians chapter 3 says that we are on display to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. See, so we are under scrutiny. Paul says that we have become a spectacle to the cosmos. We are under scrutiny. And since we're under scrutiny to the demons, to the fallen angels, to the cosmos at large, it's not surprising that the minions of the cosmos at large the minions of the adversary, the servants of demons are exhibiting this activity here. Spying, watching, monitoring, keeping tabs, and always condemning. Always condemning. Okay? And by the way, this is uh, not just simply my opinion 
about the Pharisees in particular, or legalism in general. This is what the Bible's teaching. Jesus Christ referred to them as a brood of vipers. So if you're going to call me a, a Jew hater or a Pharisee hater or what have you, it's, I'm just teaching the Word of God as it's been revealed. They are serving the adversary. And uh, we know um, that this is what they're doing. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, so Jesus Christ struggles not against flesh and blood. It's not the human being Pharisees that are really the issue. It's the, it's the demonic motivation that's driving them to crucify the Christ. All right. Maybe I need to say that more often. <laughs> Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. His struggle was not against the humanity of these Pharisees. All right. When it comes right down to it. So we, we read here in verse 2. Uh, I mean, the, the, the scene is set up so quickly in verse 1. They're, they're traveling. Passing through grain fields, they got hungry. Okay, what are they supposed to do? Not like they can just zip on into a McDonald's drive-through or something, and you know, get a bag of burgers or something, and on continue on their way to uh, to Galilee. Uh, but as they're passing through, there's the grain, and uh, not only is there nothing wrong with what they're doing, it was even commanded or permitted for them to do this very thing, and we'll see that passage here shortly. Remarkable how the Pharisees can accuse them of law-breaking when actually there is, uh, what they're doing is they're defending their own traditions and they're defying what the Word of God says. No surprise there. But when the Pharisees saw this, and, and I'm going to spotlight, I'm not going to do a whole lot with the grammar in this section, but there's, there's a couple things we're going we're gonna to glean on this. I like the way it's rendered in verse 1 where it says, His disciples became hungry. Okay, his disciples became hungry. Now, think about that. The idea of becoming hungry. This is just starting. Okay, if you're hungry, I won't, you know, show of hands. Are you hungry right now? Okay, doesn't matter. But let's just assume that right now at 1030 a.m., you presently, even now, are hungry. Okay, well, when did that start? Because if it could be beginning right now. This could be just the beginnings of your hunger. And if you don't eat, then in five more minutes, you'll be more hungry. And in 15 minutes, you'll be more hungry. And an hour from now, you'll, you'll still be hungry when you stop to think about it. Okay. And the idea here is that this is just starting. They became hungry. The inception of this hunger is highlighted. And then when it gives you the infinitives here for picking and eating, it's uh, giving them here with, indeed, the, uh, the, the adverb that modifies these verbs. They began to pick the heads of grain and eat. They began. So it's like they just they, they, they plucked the very first one. Okay? They were starting to, to take the husk off. They hadn't quite even got food to their mouth quite yet. Because they were just beginning to eat. And that's how quick the Pharisees were jumping on them. Okay? It's vivid. It's vivid as you examine this. The Pharisees jumped on them as soon as they began to pick and eat. That's sub-point A. The Pharisees jumped on them just as soon as they began to pick and eat. The whole process with respect to the grain... I mean, as I described it a moment ago, actually plucking the head off, actually removing the, the outer uh, uh, skin, the outer shuck, and getting rid of that, and then actually eating the grain from within. The Pharisees viewed that as work. They viewed that as reaping, as threshing, <laughs> all right, and as preparing a meal. See, well, what kind of preparation was that? Well, you had to pluck it, and you had to shuck it, and then you had to consume it. So they viewed that as reaping, threshing, winnowing. They had different concepts of what was happening there in order to accuse them of being Sabbath breakers. We'll examine a little bit of that here as well. And all they were doing were snacking as they were walking through. Okay. Um, I don't know... One time I was going to put something up here to uh, spotlight the uh, the actual inception of this. Let me go back to verse 1. 
Okay, this is for my Greek students here this morning. They began, and you have Erxata right here, where they began. Where's my little marker? That's where they began, and there's two verbs that are attached with that, both in the infinitive, telain and esthein. All right, you're familiar with estheo, to eat, okay? You're not familiar with tillo, but here's tillo. And it's in the infinitive, both cases, telain, right there, and esthein. And those are the two verbs that are attached to the, uh, the adjective here, they, or the adverb here, they began. The process just barely begun. They barely began the process of picking, barely began the process of eating, and that's how quick the disciples, uh, the Pharisees were to, uh, to jump on them. Then their statement in verse 2, it is not lawful, it is not permissible. Uk existin, right there, it is not permissible. It's not allowed. You can't do this. You're breaking the rules. To which the question could then be asked, well, what rules are you talking about? Whose rules? God's rules? Your rules? Who, who's, whose standard am I trying to, uh, am I trying to uh, measure up to here anyway? All right? When it comes right down to it. The Pharisees declared the disciples' activity to be unlawful, yet it was perfectly lawful. Deuteronomy 23 and verse 25. The Pharisees declare the disciples' activity to be unlawful. It is not permitted. Yet it was perfectly lawful. Deuteronomy 23 and verse 25. And this is really a great illustration of how when people get all twisted around with legalism, how they can, in fact... Totally turn the Bible upside down. Totally re- reverse everything. And that's when God pronounces woe to those who call good evil and evil good. Right? To so those who exalt their own traditions and ignore the scriptures. As Christ accused, rightly accused the Pharisees of doing. As reading Deuteronomy 23, the last verse of the chapter, and there's a, it's a lengthy chapter with a lot of other... Um, laws and stipulations and things in here. Um, But just notice verse 25. When you enter your neighbor's standing grain, then you may pluck the heads with your hand. So there's nothing wrong with this. This is allowed. But you shall not wield a sickle in your neighbor's standing grain. In other words, you're not harvesting You're not in there with your tools and gathering his crop in and keeping it. Okay? That's his crop. And he'll go out there with his own sickle, with his own reapers, with his own men, and he will reap the fields. Because it's his field. And that's his crop, and that's his livelihood. All right? And he's allowed to do that Sunday through Friday because that's his farm. That's his field. The only day he doesn't go out there with his tools with his workers as a a uh, pursuit of income is the sabbath he doesn't work that field on the sabbath see but this has nothing to do with the sabbath either keeping it or breaking it this simply has to do with traveling passing through the area entering in your neighbor's standing grain and you can snack as you pass through you may pluck the heads with your hand but you shall not wield a sickle in your neighbor's standing grain. So when you read that verse, isn't that what the disciples were doing? Right? It's exactly what they were doing. And yet the Pharisees jump all over them and say, well, you can't do that. You can't do that. All right? So, by way of reminder, we did this a few weeks back. It's worth doing again. What exactly does it mean to break the Sabbath? What does it mean to break the Sabbath? Well, you recall the passages, Exodus chapter 20, Ten Commandments? It says, in verse 8, Exodus 20, verse 8, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. Okay? And it, it's across the board. It's universal. And it doesn't matter if you're a doctor, a lawyer, an Indian chief, whatever you are. 
you're a ditch digger, you're a truck driver, whatever you are, you've got a six-day work week. But on the Sabbath, which in Old Testament times was Saturday, the seventh day. All right. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work. And that is the contrast with verse 9. Whatever your career is, whatever your income producing labor is, you don't do that seven days a week. That stops. You only do that six days a week. You or your son or your daughter or your male or your female servant or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. Not only do you take the day off from work, but your whole staff is off. Your servants, your slaves, your workers, your employees, everybody. There is no commerce taking place. And maybe the better word in our minds for work would be commerce. Okay? And it's described in this way. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. And so it was a day that was set apart to not just sit there in your house, staring at the walls, doing nothing. It was supposed to be dedicated to the Lord, going to church or going to synagogue, going to the temple, offering a sacrifice, worshiping, participating in various feasts, celebrating. Okay, quite a bit of activity took place on the Sabbath and it wasn't work because it wasn't commerce, but it was it was activity. There were things being done. As far as that goes. All right. Michael, could you help our friend out here? All right. Also, beyond that passage, this passage also doesn't give a long list of do's and don'ts. Passage doesn't say if you do this, you're okay. If you do that, you're breaking the Sabbath. We get other information as far as Sabbath observance goes. Uh, over in chapter 23, just three chapters later in verse 12, Exodus 23:12. Six days you are to do your work, but on the seventh day you shall cease from labor, so that your ox, your donkey may rest, and the son of your female slave, as well as your stranger, may refresh themselves. Again, that's a cessation of your career. Um, but not a lot of detail there. In chapter 31, verses 13 through 16. Chapter 31, 13 through 16. Very similar to what we've already read, observing the Sabbath. It is, it is a uh, sign between me and you throughout your generations. Therefore, you would observe the Sabbath. Notice in verse 14, for it is holy to you. Everyone who profanes it shall surely be put to death. See, the command was to observe it. And if you fail to observe it, you are profaning it. And the penalty for profaning it is death, not persecution. The Pharisees tried to go into a persecution role. The penalty was death. Whoever does any work on it, that person shall be cut off from among his people, meaning he's put to death. Six days work may be done. That's pursuing your career. But on the seventh day, there is a Sabbath of complete rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall surely be put to death. The passage that I think spells it out the greatest is in Nehemiah. There's a good passage in Jeremiah, Jeremiah 17, verses 21 and 22. But Nehemiah 13, I think, gives the fullest description. Ezra, Nehemiah, if you get to Esther and Job, you've gone too far. Nehemiah 13, I think, has the best description on this. Verses 15 through 21. In those days I saw in Judah some who were treading wine presses on the Sabbath. Okay, conducting their business, resuming, you know, continuing on in their business for profit, bringing in sacks of grain, loading them on donkeys. This, this is, uh, you know, they, their uh, shipping and receiving department is, uh, is, is uh, up and running on this day. As well as wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads, and they brought them into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. You see what this is? This is commerce taking place. This is work taking place. So I admonished them on the day they sold food. Also men of Tyre were living there who imported fish and all kinds of merchandise and sold them to the sons of Judah on the Sabbath, even in Jerusalem. 
Then I reprimanded the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this evil thing you are doing by profaning the Sabbath day? Remember, in Nehemiah's generation, he was there bringing them back from captivity after the Babylonian captivity, after 70 years of captivity. He says, are you guys out of your mind? That's why we went into captivity in the first place. And we were there for 70 years, and now we're just able to come back. And there's Zerubbabel and Ezra and finally Nehemiah. And look what they're doing all over again. And so um, Nehemiah has has to shut it down. Verse 19, it came about that just as it grew dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and that they should not open them until after the Sabbath. Then I stationed some of my servants at the gates so that no load would enter on the Sabbath day. Now, let me ask you something. Those guys that were posted there, weren't they working? Those guys that Nehemiah posted at the gates and said, keep these gates shut, keep them locked. When the traders come, send them away. Aren't those guys working? Of course they're working. But they're not breaking the Sabbath, are they? Aren't they obeying Nehemiah? Okay. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Brian. So I stationed some of my servants at the gates so that no load would enter on the Sabbath day. Once or twice, the traders and merchants of every kind of merchandise spent the night outside Jerusalem. Why? Well, because the gates were locked. And Nehemiah's servants were there keeping them out. Then I warned them and said to them, why do you spend the night in front of the wall? If you do so again, I will use force against you. So from that time, they didn't come on the Sabbath. See, it only takes once or twice. They figure it out. They learn. Okay. And so here is what we're observing in terms of Sabbath observance. And it is not what uh, it had turned into some 400 years later. By the time the Pharisees were in control. The uh, concept of Sabbath was anything but what it originally had been given. All right, one other thing. We did this before as well. Go ahead and close all those down. don't need to look at any of those. Remember the Mishnah. Remember looking at the Mishnah? Remember what the Mishnah was? Mishnah is the recorded traditions of the Jews. And their section on the Sabbath... Titled Shabbat, gives here the various stipulations for what constitutes Sabbath breaking and not Sabbath breaking. Here we are. It's, whoops, too far. Section 7 is really the best. You can see all these 13 different sections on Sabbath observance. Let me just find chapter 7 here. I should have bookmarked this. They declared 39 ways. The generative categories of acts of labor prohibited on the Sabbath are 40 less 1. Remember, 40 is a perfect number. 40 is the number of such divine actions, right? 40 days and 40 nights, and 40 is such a great biblical number. And the Jews decided, but 40 was just too much. We'll take one off. We'll give 39 commands, and this will be how you can observe the Sabbath. It's, by the way, also why they give 39 lashes when they were scourging a man, because 40 would be just over the, over the top. But 39, you can demonstrate some grace by cutting one lash off and giving somebody 39 lashes. Okay? Paul received that five times. All right. By the way, if, if you're not going to cross the line from 39 to 40, doesn't it kind of miss the point if you're going to give the 39 lashes five times? Okay, just a thought. All right, the generative categories of acts of labor prohibited on the Sabbath are 40 less one. He who sows, plows, reaps. And you can imagine this is what they were accusing the, Pharisees, the, uh, the, the disciples of doing. They say, well, you're, you're reaping because you plucked the head off the grain there in that field as you were walking through. Binds sheaves, threshes. They could have accused the disciples of threshing because not only did they pluck the head off, but they also they had to peel the uh, the husk off the the outer skin off of the uh, grain, and so they were threshing or winnowing, depending on which way you wanted to look at it. Uh, selecting that is fit from unfit produce or crops. Weren't the disciples selecting when they looked out upon the grain and they plucked that one instead of one of these other ones over here? They made a, a grain selection, didn't they? By plucking a head of grain, they didn't pluck the head of grain next to it, so they selected. They selected that is fit from unfit. 
um, grinding, sifting, kneading, baking. And they didn't actually bake the grain, but they still, nevertheless, they plucked it and skinned it and, and maybe uh, rubbed it. And uh, so that's considered not really baking, but they were preparing a meal. He who shears wool or washes it, beats it, dyes it, spins, weaves, makes two loops. You can make a single loop. That's fine. That second loop, though, you're a Sabbath breaker. Um, weaves two threads, separates two threads, ties, unties, sews two. So slippers are real, you know, the slip-on shoes. You need those for the Sabbath because you can't tie your shoes or untie your shoes. Um he who traps a deer, slaughters it, flays it, salts it, cures its hide, scrapes it, cuts it up. He who writes two letters, erases two letters in order to write two letters. He who builds, he who tears down, he who puts out a fire or kindles a fire, he who uh, hits with a hammer. And finally, number 39, he who transports an object from one domain to another. That's what they criticized the man for carrying his pallet home with. Because what he was doing was he was transferring from one domain to another. He was taking his pallet from public to private, from the public domain to the private domain by taking his pallet home. All right. Lo, these are the 40 generative acts of labor less one. Okay. You will note that what we just read has no resemblance to the Bible verses we just read. All right. From Exodus or Deuteronomy or Jeremiah or Nehemiah or any of these places in describing what it is that violates the Sabbath, pursuing your career. They declare the disciples' activity to be unlawful when, in fact, it was perfectly lawful, which we saw already in Deuteronomy 23 and verse 25. Thirdly, Jesus answered the Pharisees' question with a question of his own. Have you ever been told that? Don't answer a question with a question. Who told you that? Whose rule is that anyway? Okay? Now, I've been told that lots of times. I'm not sure why, but evidently that's improper in some settings. But Jesus uses the methodology. Actually, it was very common among rabbis, among the Pharisees. It was very common as a rhetorical device uh, in replying to a question with a question of your own that was designed to illustrate, was designed to teach. Okay. Uh, the rich young, I mean, the, the, the lawyer wants to know, well, who's my neighbor? And so Jesus gives him a parable of the, of the uh, Good Samaritan and then replies with his own question and says, all right, now, who, which one of those was the, was the neighbor? Okay. And that became a, a question. And the guy only had one answer, and it answered his question, didn't it? It answered a question with a question. Well, here's another one. Answering a question with a question. He says, have you not read? Have you not read? And it's, it's kind of a stupid question because, of course, they've read. Everybody's read that. There would not be, you couldn't make the rank of Pharisee without having read the Bible, you know, particularly the book of Samuel and Kings and what's, you know, the Psalms of David and, and really all of David's life was second probably only to all of Moses' life for reverence among the, among the Jewish leaders. So by saying, have you not read what David did, it would be almost like somebody today saying, well, haven't you ever read your Bible? You know, any part of it? You profess to be a Christian. Uh, you know you know what's in here? Okay? And it becomes supremely insulting if, in fact, the person not only claims to be a Christian, but also claims to be a Bible student or a Bible-believing Christian. In other words, a rebuke like, haven't you ever read your Bible? That, that, that hits real hard in a Bible church. Okay? Might not hit as hard in other churches or what have you, if maybe they typically don't read the Bible as a matter of rule. But it uh, it gets very convicting. So when he says, have you not read what David did when he became hungry? That's, not only is he answering with a question, but he's actually answering with a very insulting question. See, do you know how insulting this is? Because of course they've read it. And they're going to be left really without an explanation to make. Because they're not going to have much, or any, really any way to answer it because their conclusion is going to be the same as everybody else's conclusion is that David broke the law. David ate bread he shouldn't have eaten. And his men ate bread they shouldn't have eaten. Okay? And yet God didn't strike David dead for doing any of that. 
And God actually blessed David for, um, through that process and protected David as David was fleeing from King Saul at that time. Okay, we're coming up to, on the end of the hour, and I, I don't want to leave in an awkward spot, but let's uh, we can look at it. But he answers the Pharisee's question with a question of his own. He says, have you not read? And then the, the next question in verse 5 is also similar. Have you not read in the law? And so there's two things here where he's going to challenge them back on the word of God. And it's a great device whenever you encounter legalism, whenever somebody's telling you that, well, you know, you can't go to movies or whatever. Okay. You can't play cards or whatever. Okay. And they'll tell you this and say, well. What does the scripture say? Okay. Um, and, and so that's the, uh, that's the device. Point four. The example of David was an undeniable. The example of David was undeniable. And to the Pharisees, inexplicable. The example of David was undeniable. So as far as the Pharisees, Jesus, the disciples, anybody, read it for yourself. It's undeniable. But to the Pharisees, it was inexplicable. Absolutely inexplicable. To people that are so wrapped up and consumed with the letter of the law, any deviation, any variation, any departure, any... Anything like that is anathema. Okay? Inconceivable. Inexplicable. Because the mindset of the Pharisee that's so trapped to even consider an alternative is, it's almost like it just doesn't compute. It's almost just like, uh, 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 say that again, Right? Are we, are we speaking the same language here? Because it is so mind-boggling, absolutely staggering, that you would even encounter something, something like this. Okay? I encountered something fairly similar the other day. I came back from the, um, the pre-trib conference. Wonderful conference. Got, uh, spent Sunday night, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, uh, in Dallas and attended uh, the various sessions that they had there, the different speakers that they had there, Tommy Ice and uh, Tim LaHaye and Robbie Dean and a whole bunch of other scholars, and, and just absolutely soaked it up and, and was immersed for three days, totally immersed in uh, eschatological studies, that is prophecy, uh, dispensational theology, uh, and so totally immersed in dispensational theology in contrast with covenant theology, for example, and came back and started to describe the conference to another believer, okay, not somebody in this church, but another believer, and he asked me the question of what's covenant theology, okay, and it just like, like that, okay, now, some of you here this morning might be saying the same thing. What's covenant theology? Okay. And I won't be as dumbfounded if you were to ask me that this morning as I was on that day, because coming back on that very day that I came back, I was so um, uh, just so consumed and overwhelmed. And the whole time had been spent in these circles. See, it'd be like, you know, plucking a fish out of water. And then on the very moment he lands on the beach, Asking them, you know, what's water, you know, and so coming out of the the pre-trib conference then, and then this guy asked me, he says, well, what's covenant theology? It just it took me a good three minutes of of confused dumbfoundness to all of a sudden say, oh yeah, wait a minute, I've I've left the realm of the theologians with all their highfalutin language, and I'm back in the real world now, where there's everyday people that don't use those terms all the time and don't really have any good reason to <laughs> all right so here we are this is inexplicable because in the pharisees world every, the law is everything okay 
in the Pharisees' world, the strict adherence to the very letter, even to the point where they're tithing their condiments. Okay? <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, it's one thing in terms of giving, you know, the, what's expected, what's required, but when you go to that, that it'd, be like, it'd be like coming home from H-E-B, right? And you're unloading your groceries, and you get your uh, Crest or Aqua Fresh or whatever your toothpaste is, okay, Colgate, whatever your brand is, right? And you take the tube out, and you have it measured, and you squeeze out one-tenth of your Colgate before you use the remaining 90%. Okay? And you do the same thing with your salt and pepper. And you do the same thing with, I mean, with everything. Doesn't that sound ridiculous? That's what they're doing. That was the Phariseeism of the day. Jesus Christ nails them too. He says, here you are, you're tithing mint and dill and cumin and you're ignoring the weightier provisions of the law. That is the whole point of the aspect of compassion and grace and love. And we'll, we'll get into those things there as well. All right. Let's, uh, let's just go to 1 Samuel 21. Let's get a quick, uh, quick peek at it as we wrap this up. 1 Samuel 21. 1 Samuel 21. And we'll dismiss with this and then uh, save it for next week. We'll come back to this next week. 1 Samuel 21, David came to Nob. Okay, David came to Nob, and if you don't have the context of chapter 20 or what happens before here, Saul's trying to kill David. Saul is the king. David should be the king. David has been anointed. David will be the next king. Uh, Saul's not too swift on that idea, so Saul's trying to kill David to keep David from becoming the next king. And uh, so David is a fugitive. David is on the run. And he comes to Nob, to Ahimelech, the priest. And Ahimelech came trembling to meet David and saying, Why are you alone and why is no one with you? Okay, The, the, the priest knows something's wrong. David's not here yeah, officially. He's, he's on the run. Uh, and David said to Himelech, the priest, the king has commissioned me with a matter and has said to me, I'm on a mission. David is lying through his teeth. Okay, so you've got to throw this passage into any discussion. We were talking about Rahab the other day. Well, she told a lie. It ended up in Hebrews 11. How does that happen? Well, here's David telling a lie. I'm on a mission. The king commissioned me with a matter and said, let no one know anything about the matter. So it's a secret mission. I can't tell you. Uh, I can't tell you where I'm going. I can't tell you what's taking place. But I'm on a secret mission and I need your help. What do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever can be found. And the priest answered David and said, there's no ordinary bread on hand. There's the consecrated bread. If only the young men have kept themselves from women. Okay. <laughs> That's the verse getting you in a lot of trouble. But this deals with the ritual purification and... Uh, Sexual activity, even godly sexual activity to a husband and a wife was such that it would cause a person to become unclean in the ritualistic sense where you could not participate in the holy activities of the of the worship system. And so David says, surely women have been kept from us as previously when I set out and the vessels of the young men were holy. So uh, even though then it was an ordinary journey, how much more today will their vessels be holy? He says, absolutely, we are sanctified. This is a secret mission, and we, have, we are ritually clean as we are going out to do the Lord's work. All right? So the priest gave him consecrated bread. And by the way, the priest has no biblical authority to do this. There's no command that says, you know, if they're ritually pure, they can transgress the Levitical stipulations here and eat this bread anyway. No, this bread is for, is for the Levites alone. The priest gave him consecrated bread, for there was no bread there, but the bread of the presence, which was removed from before the Lord in order to put hot bread in his place when it was taken away. All right. So David's lying through his teeth. The priest is making stuff up. <laughs> well, you can eat this if you're holy. And um, he's eating the bread that he cannot eat. Okay. So we'll come back to this. Leviticus 24 is the text that we'll examine when we come back to this. Verses 5 through 9 that stipulates... Uh, David can't eat this bread. 
Okay, doesn't matter if he's if he's had sex or not, if he's ritually clean or not. There are other things too. If you killed somebody, if you touched a dead body, if you and there are lots of things that make you unclean, ritually unclean. Okay, um, Leviticus doesn't allow for David to eat this bread, but David eats the bread. So we'll uh, we'll come back to that. Father, I thank you. We've got a good start on this passage this morning, Father. I thank you that. Um, well, Father, the, there's the letter of the law, there's the spirit of the law, and I thank you then. The bottom line is that Jesus Christ fulfilled the law. And I thank you, Father, that we can relax in Christ, that we have a righteousness that is ours, not on the basis of keeping a list of do's and don'ts. We have a righteousness that's given on the basis of grace through faith. And, Father, I thank you that it's not our own righteousness, but it's your righteousness that you bless us with in Christ. Father, I pray that we might learn these lessons. I pray we might learn how to develop a relaxed mental attitude. I pray we might learn what pleases you and uh, live our lives accordingly. And I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.